Hello, and welcome to the Discipleship Webcast. My name is Levi Heath. I'm a region support intern. This is Robin Waller, our lead pastor. <laughs> That's very, very officious. I like that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, great to see everybody. It's going to be a great night. Uh, yeah. Cool. What are we talking about tonight? Uh, we are talking. You got very like sort of late night vibes going on. I like oh, this, Levi. This is good. Um, we are talking about uh, the idea that quote love wins, which mm. sounds like this really great idea, but I actually think it's sort of confusing. Um, it's not necessarily obvious what it means, and uh, if it's a first thing, it actually turns out to be kind of a bad first thing because it's not well defined. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go first things, talk about love wins and whether or not it should be a first thing. Cool. Love that. Uh, see, what you, see what you did there. All right, so get comfy, and we'll be right back. Let me show you what I mean. Yeah. What I got is the new thing. Yeah. Listen up, I'm gonna say it all right now. Cool. Well, we have a lot of news this week. Um Starting us off. Starting us off. So first up, we got uh, a Canada Day event happening with international students. Claire and her Simple Church, along with the international students team, have set up an event on the homepage of Engage. There's going to be fireworks, a bonfire, a bunch of other activities. So I encourage you to sign up and bring along a friend looking forward to gathering people on Canada Day to help celebrate um, some of the wonderful uh, privilege we have of living where we live. Yeah, it's cool. Um, we have Welcome Week brainstorming sessions happening every other Friday starting next week. Um, so check out Discord for more information on that um, or reach out to Vivian Lee or Matt Matos. Love that. It's going to be awesome. Uh, also, just a quick heads up, June 27th, so not this Sunday, but next Sunday, I believe is when that will be. Uh, sorry, in two Sundays uh, after this Sunday, so not... Not this Sunday, not next Sunday, the Sunday after. Uh, we're going to be doing a town hall. So just a heads up, we're going to have town hall happening June 27th, right after livecast. Should be a good time. Cool. Awesome. Um, so today is day 11 of the Amazing Race. So what are your Amazing Race celebrations? If you have any photos, just drop them in the, the chat. And um, yeah, celebrate as much as you can. And in the realm of celebrating, we are celebrating, of course, the ability to do some more in-person activities uh, and really thankful for that and the sunshine and the warm weather. Some great stuff happening. A lot of the times after livecast on Sunday, some great gathering momentum happening. So I'd mm -hmm. encourage you to be checking your region's Discord chat to follow with what's going on, um, but also leading the initiative to bring people together uh, in, in, in constructive ways in this season. So really thankful for that and looking forward to that and uh, lots to celebrate there yeah um we're also celebrating the kids team for uh caring for our kids so well and our whole church was rallying around um parents so that they can have a place to watch live cast 
after dropping off the kids on Sundays. Yes, thank you, kids team. We love you guys very much. Also want to celebrate Alyssa, uh, Dan, Kayla, and Helena, who have launched into the Cultural Exchange Program, which is an opportunity to engage international students and help orient them to Canada, which is awesome. And uh, man, just amazing, amazing job, uh, team. Love the work we're doing to reach international students. I love that. So way to go. Uh, what have you guys been celebrating this week? And uh, if you've been celebrating anything, please share it. The more we share, the more we can encourage one another. Mm. And now we have Susan, Linnea, and Ina who are going to be celebrating more. Hey church, this week I am celebrating the way that we've still been able to serve the Westside community. Specifically, my Simple Church and Kelsey Simple Church have been meeting to write letters to Westside. And a special shout out to Tiana who has been organizing everything and leading Westside. Hi Church, Linnea here from MACB Region. I'm celebrating the prayer walk our region went on on Tuesday. We got to pray over the residences for incoming first years, international students, and the faculty. Hey Church, my name is Ina and I'm the Simple Church Regional Director at York University. I am here today to celebrate the wonderful Shane, Andrew, and Carol as they say yes to being sent to U of T Mississauga. I am so proud of each of them for taking the bold step of just being sent to a new city, a new place, um, and just with a heart to see people know Jesus and to till the grounds and make the first generation of disciples that will make more disciples and that will make more disciples. Um, and as someone that's seen the fruit and the faithfulness of God as you say yes to him, I am thrilled and super excited to just see the fruit that will come from um, this and I just pray as a, as a church that we can continue to support them, continue to pray for them, and continue to ask the question in our hearts of how, where can we be sent and how can we continue to see people know Jesus. But love you guys and so proud of you three. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we hope we'll be right back with our interview, but first we're going to do our discipleship resource of the week. This week we're announcing a new discipleship guide on baptism. So you may have seen the super easy baptism guide. That's the really simple version of it. We've created a more expanded teaching on baptism since there's often a lot of questions that come up and we wanted to give it a bit more of a thorough treatment given how uh, important baptism is, but also given the opportunity that we're going to have to do baptisms now. So I want to encourage you, number one, that this is a tool to have with people in your simple churches now so that we can do baptisms together this summer. And if you know anyone that hasn't been baptized, this tool is to equip you to navigate a conversation around baptism. Simple version is, if somebody confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, they should get baptized. It's really that simple. But there's often a lot of questions to understand it, and that's what this guide is for. So it's a bit more detailed. You can see here uh, we answer quite a few questions and co cover uh, some scenarios that we run into on a regular basis or hesitations. And so this tries to equip you to navigate it. You can find it as the second discipleship resource currently listed on engage.livechurch.ca. would encourage you to make use of it. All right, we're going to kick things over to the daily Devo reflection, and hopefully we'll be right back with our interview after that. Hey everyone, I'm Erica, and I'm a Simple Church member in Mac Region B. This week I've been thinking a lot about God's covenant with Abraham. I noticed that God repeats his promise to Abraham multiple times throughout Genesis. 
This showed me that God wants to make his message clear to us and he will continue to pursue us, speak to us, and repeat himself until we get it and are confident in what he's saying. He's a God of clarity, not of confusion. I also noticed that Galatians 3 beautifully highlights the fact that because of Jesus, we also get to receive this promise that God gave to Abraham. Something that God revealed to me is that just like with Abraham, God knew we weren't going to be perfect, but he decided to love us and commit to us anyway. It wasn't like God made this covenant and then realized afterwards that we were going to mess it up and wish he could take it back. He wasn't backed into a corner or forced to make this covenant with us. He actively and intentionally chose to love us, despite knowing how imperfect and sinful we are. Galatians 3.3 highlights that we often get sucked into thinking that if we can just be better at following the rules, we'll see God more and get closer to him. But we don't see God and receive the Holy Spirit because of our ability to follow rules. We see and receive him by God's grace through Jesus alone. No matter how hard we try, we can't earn our way into God's presence. And he never expected us to. That's why he made this covenant with Abraham and why he sent Jesus. When we try to earn God's favor by following the law, we are slaves to rules. This is not God's desire for us. He came to set us free and to take us from slaves to the law to free children and heirs of his kingdom. How amazing. All right, guys, we're just trying to get our interview set up. We're going to give it a few more seconds of trying here, just trying really to get a connection. If we can't, we'll just continue on, but we'll be right back. Just sit tight. We're not dead. We are here. We're working away. We'll be right back.
right, guys, we're going to uh, continue on straight into our teaching this evening. And so unfortunately, we weren't able to get our interview set up, but that's okay. We will. <clears throat> it was so good. You guys just weren't ready. You just weren't ready. And uh, there wasn't enough cheering on Discord. And so we've decided that uh, we're just going to have to defer it to another week. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, thankful for the team for setting it up, and we will get to it, we promise. And so we're back into our First Things series this evening, and we're talking about in the First Things series as a whole, what happens when we put something that's a good thing, but it's a good second thing, and a bad first thing. What that means is if you take something that's a good second thing and you make it a first thing, you lose the thing that ought to be the first thing and the second thing as well. It's important that we put, as the saying goes, first things first. Now, we've covered a range of subjects. We've talked about why Jesus' lordship is more important than labels a number of weeks ago. We've talked about objectivity, not opinion. We've talked about how to navigate personal experience and why uh, God's authority in the scriptures has to take precedence over our personal experiences. And we've talked about how do we interpret scripture and have the first things of a quality and consistent hermeneutic or approach to understanding scripture. Tonight, I want to talk specifically about this idea, this second thing, that is love wins. And it is a good second thing behind the proper first thing, which is that Jesus' love wins. And that qualifier is really important, and we're going to talk about why the idea of love wins can't be a sufficient first thing by itself. It must be qualified or further defined in order to have any substantive meaning. Now, this is a really interesting one because it sounds right, doesn't it? It feels right, and it's tremendously compelling. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty certain that the origins of the phrase love wins was certainly popularized or made much more popular by a book by that title released, I believe it was in 2011, which was uh, hard to believe 10 years ago. And the idea was sort of advocating for a kind of a jumbled theology of a whole bunch of things, but at the core, it was advocating for this idea that love wins. What was interesting is that it led to a lot of questions, but at an emotional level, the phrase feels really good, doesn't it? Like, love wins, like, yeah, let's champion that. And in a sense, it's absolutely true. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, Now, these things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Love is the thing that triumphs over, in a way, all the other virtues. In another sense, we can say that love does win because God is love, as 1 John 4 says. It says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, in a way, love does win. It seems to say that, it seems like that's exactly what the scriptures say. But here's the thing. The statement love wins is that it's sufficiently vague. It's, it's sort of so vague that it doesn't really mean anything by itself. The phrase love wins only has meaning when it is attached to other ideas, beliefs, practices, or ideologies. 
Love wins by itself doesn't really mean anything. For example, if love wins, quote, we must stop and ask, what exactly is love? You see, words are tremendously powerful for good or for ill. And if we're not precise with what we mean with our words, if we're not precise in defining and using our words consistently, what we mean with our words can become weaponized, harmful, hurtful, and dangerous. The word love and its opposite, hate, in many ways have been weaponized in our world. They mean something, and it's not necessarily obvious what they mean, but they're used like a weapon. You're hateful or you're not loving is used so accusatory and in such a sort of damning and separating and divisive ways in our culture today. You see, the thing is, everyone that I know is for love. I don't know anyone, I'm sure they exist, but I don't know anyone that is truly for being hateful. But the thing is that not everybody has the same understanding and vision for love. For our culture, for the most part, love is largely about, I think, some combination of personal liberty, unconstrained freedom of choice, personal pleasure, and fulfillment of hopes and dreams, and so forth. In other words, love is some appears to me to have some correlation between uh, personal satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And the question we have to ask is, is that the love that wins? And is that vision of love, is the vision of love that is put out in our culture the love that wins, and is it the love of Scripture, and is it compatible with the Christian vision of love? So the first thing we have to ask is, if love wins, what is love? But the second question we have to ask is, if love wins, this means that love is implicitly in some kind of moral battle, right? If love, quote, wins, it means there's a battle between something. There must be some kind of opposing force to love that it is fighting against. I suppose the assumption is that that force is hate, but we have to then ask, how do we define hate? If love is the answer to a moral battle, how do we measure the outcomes and the morality associated with love winning and with that battle? How do we know if love is winning? What is the moral standard against which we are measuring our sense of love and love winning and hate and hate losing? Do you see that this phrase that seems to resonate as true is actually laden with a lot of questions that are not easily defined? And so the question I want us to grapple with today is very simply this. Does our vision of love start with Jesus' death on the cross? Or does it flow or start from our personal experiences? What's the starting place for understanding what love is? Because if love is going to win, then we need to understand what it is winning against and how and what it is that wins. We need to define our terms. We need to be 
precise. And so very simply, let me give you the big idea here. As Christians, our vision, our definition, our understanding of love is entirely consummated, entirely defined in the broken, battered, and murdered body of a first century Jewish man named Jesus, who was executed under the boot of tyranny, oppression, and hypocrisy. If you want to know what love is, look there. You see, the New Testament is all about love. If you had to summarize the New Testament, and in particular summarize uh, the letter of 1 John or John's letters, in one word you would, I think, be very justified in advocating for the word love. But what's very interesting is that John, in particular, the author of the love letters in the New Testament, as they're sometimes known, 1 John and John, was very aware of the need to be precise in defining what he meant with love. And so was the Apostle Paul. And he does so actually twice in just two chapters in 1 John. He, he John, defines love. He says this, quote, 1 John 4.10. Love consists in this. So he's about to define love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 3.16 says this, How then have we come to know love? In other words, it's like John is aware that we're all searching for love. We're all trying to define love. We're trying to come to a clarity of what, is it, what does it mean to love people? And so he says, guys, we found the answer. How did we find it? How did we have come to know love? That he, Jesus, laid his life down for us. Therefore, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So the very first thing we have to do here when we're looking at defining the fact that Jesus' love wins is first and foremost, we have to understand that love is not an emotion. That's not the way that John defines it. Now you see, you and I and world around us, we experience a wide range of emotions and an even wider range of decisions and actions that shape those emotions. And typically what we want to do when we want to know if an action is loving, we look inwards at how does that action make me feel? Or maybe if we're feeling a little bit more altruistic, we ask, well, how does this action make others feel. So we look at uh, the emotional response at ourselves and at others to determine whether or not an action is loving. And so, for example, if an action makes us feel validated, secure, affirmed, or so forth, we conclude that the action must be loving. Or if it makes somebody else feel validated, secure, affirmed, and so forth, we assume that therefore we have found love. So what we do is we define love by looking at people's experiences. How did they experience it? Therefore, that action must be loving. Now, of course, there's a measure of that being true. We do need to see 
how things feel. We need to take into account our emotions or how other people respond to things. But our emotions are only and only, and this is the key part, they're only an instantaneous response to our actions. They do not necessarily help us understand why we feel the way we feel or indicate how the continued action will affect us into the future. Our present self might feel validated and secure, but our future self may not appreciate it very much. Was it loving? Further, our instantaneous emotions completely neglect the reality that there may be tremendous negative consequences to ourselves or others or the world around us as a result of our actions. So for example, our actions might make us feel affirmed, secure, validated, confident, but they might have negative consequences that we may not be taking into consideration. Now those negative consequences may be for us, it may be for others, but if we only look at the concept of love as fulfillment, or love as personal satisfaction, or love as personal pleasure, then we're gonna come up with a very short-sighted vision of love. I'll give you an example that sort of illustrates this sort of in the extreme. If someone has an affair, for example, the language that you'll hear, and I've seen it all over the place, is that the person having the affair, quote, loves the other person involved. And that makes sense. Right? Because the present self, the person engaged in the affair, feels fulfilled in their experiences of that affair. They have a positive array of emotions. But that doesn't mean that the action was loving. How could it possibly be truly loving if it leads to fractured relationships, personal regrets, or other actions? What kind of vision is that of love? It's a purely selfish one. Now you might say, Robin, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous example. No one would define love that way. But our culture regularly defines love that way. It regularly celebrates the fulfillment of personal desire as a justified end if it is defined as loving, as I found this or defined this as loving. It'll even celebrate, as a, we'll even celebrate as a culture, the destruction of relationships, personhood, and identity on the basis of, I am, quote, finding myself, or I am, quote, loving myself, or I, quote, found true love, and we'll justify and say, well, because these things are loving, the negative consequences are justified. This is obviously very problematic. The tendency to define love based on inward emotions, I think, is best typified or best uh, exemplified in our culture by the phrase, quote, love is love. I hear this all the time. And it's a completely bizarre statement because it implies or it's saying that love is entirely self-defined and obviously self-defined, meaning we can each find our own definition of it. The implication is that if one person says something is loving, it must be loving. If two people say it's loving, it must be loving. If three people say it must be loving. If ten people or a whole culture says an action or activity is loving, it therefore must be loving. 
I can hardly think of a more damaging idea. Because people can be wrong. The human heart is profoundly short-sighted and prone to self-deception in the name of personal gratification and fulfillment. When you look at the definition of love that was laid out by John, the definition of love is rooted not in an experience, but in an event that has happened, not an emotion that we experience. John defines love by saying if we want to understand love, if we want to know if something is loving, we must compare it to the standard, which is Jesus' death on the cross. The definition of love is not found within myself, nor is it found in my emotions. The definition of love is found in an event. This means that I must test what I feel, desire, want, or dream by comparing it to that definition of love as exemplified in Jesus. And I want to bring out a few characteristics of this definition of love that are profoundly countercultural. The first is this, that love requires self-denial or denial of self. This might be one of the most important aspects of Jesus' love is that it requires a denial of self, not a fulfillment of self as the primary aim of love. John defines love by saying this is love. He, Jesus, loved us. How did he do it? By laying down his life. Jesus' love is modeled by pursuing the benefit of others, even at the expense of self. So often we confuse the desire of fulfillment. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be satisfied with the desire to be loving. If the behavior makes me feel fulfilled or somebody else feel fulfilled, it must be loving. But if we attach our sense of love to personal fulfillment, it's not looking like Jesus' love. If the purpose of our love is, purpose, is personal fulfillment, it's not love, it's selfishness. This is why Paul commands husbands to love their wives the way that Christ loves us. How? By dying to ourselves, if I'm, as I'm a husband. The Christian vision of love is so much more radically self-sacrificial than we, I, I think, understand. We must give our lives for the benefit of others. And I don't know, like, I mean, we could just camp it there. We're going to come back to this idea in a minute. The second thing I want to draw out of this is that loving and affirming are not the same thing. This is the second aspect of Jesus' death on the cross as it defines love. Notice, what did Jesus do when he died? He was atoning for our sins. In other words, Jesus' way of loving us was to confront our sinful nature, our brokenness, and to confront it in, a such, in such a way that he would die because of it. So, you, you know, Jesus loved us by acknowledging that not every part of us was lovable. 
but he chose to love us nonetheless. In fact, Jesus chose to love us even though we were not lovable, good, or worthy of his love. He was most certainly not affirming of humanity's behaviors, choices, lifestyles, or decisions in the way that he loved us. In fact, as he confronted them by dying, he was demonstrating how profoundly bad our ideas, lifestyles, behaviors, and decisions were. And I think it's in this area that a lot of Christians get really muddled up on the area of love. You see, Christians, I think we, we and most people, we want to be kind. We want to be nice. We want to, uh, you know, uh, try to be at peace with everyone, like have everything be happy and hunky-dory and never confront anything and never have any conflict. And, and so we tend to uh, avoid confrontation. And so we affirm people's decisions, actions, or we just merely just choose not to say anything. Now, this is particularly problematic in a discipleship context because if we both agree that, okay, we're both going after Jesus, we both see Jesus as Lord, but you do you and I'll do me and everybody's happy, that's not loving. When we see our brother or sister walking off of a cliff or, or, or doing something pr- profoundly damaging to themselves or others and in the name of peace or avoiding confrontation, we don't say anything, that's not loving. When we affirm people's bad ideas, that's not loving. When we affirm people's bad decisions, that's not affirming. When we say, well, it's not my business, that's not, aff- that's not loving because that's not what Jesus did. The big idea here is this, that true love requires truth. In other words, true love requires an unmoving and secure moral ground from which we can evaluate the goodness or not of an action. Love depends on and requires truth. Do you see that? That what Jesus did in dying on the cross was he confronted the immorality of humanity. He didn't confront it by just rampaging against it and pridefully standing apart from it. He confronted it by dying underneath it, by taking the consequences on. It wasn't a prideful confrontation. It was a humble confrontation, but a confrontation nonetheless. To truly love, we must go beyond surface discomfort of a peace that is brought about or a false peace that is brought about by non-confrontation to a deeper peace that is brought about by a mutual submission to each other and to our God at the feet of his cross. Love wins only when love is married to truth. In short, when I call the things that God calls sin good, or when I call the things that God calls not good good, it is not love. God is the unmoving moral ground, and he must determine what is good or not good. 
You see, the, the worth and the value and the treasure and the beauty of every person is, is like unshakable. That never changes. But that doesn't mean that everything that a person does is good or worthy to be affirmed. There are bad ideas, bad actions, bad assumptions, and bad worldviews. And if we fail to recognize that reality, we are not loving in the same way as Christ. We cannot be. Because his way of loving us was to confront the reality of sin. Does our vision of love, does it actually have room for and capacity to understand the notion of sin? If our vision of love doesn't have space for a clear theology of sin, we are likely moving from a Jesus-centric vision of love to a vision of love that is rooted in personal fulfillment and satisfaction. To truly love, people must be liberated by the truth that is found at the feet of Jesus in his love. And finally, I want to highlight that the love of Jesus, the love that wins, is compassionate. John says that we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, when I choose the word compassionate, I'm choosing it in a very precise sense. It's, again, a word that's easily misunderstood. Compassion often means like a kind of an empathy, but that's not what compassion means. Compassion and empathy are not the same thing. Um, compassion doesn't mean to be nice. Compassion means to, to suffer with, to enter into the suffering of another person with them to join in their pain that we might carry the load with them or instead of them. We must enter into the brokenness, pain, and hurt of others, taking it upon ourselves. Love is not about taking the high moral ground and separating ourselves from people. That's not loving either. No, the love of Jesus was one where he entered into our world, engaged with us, met us, and ultimately died with us. You see, the Christian vision of love is a love that is compassionate, meaning it suffers or endures long-suffering with those we are seeking to love. We lay our lives down willingly to suffer for the benefit of others. To truly love must mean that we are willing to faithfully suffer with our brothers and sisters, to join with them and be faithful to them even when it's hard. I want to illustrate this because I think it's easy to misunderstand this point. Many years ago, uh, I had a leader. This is a long time ago. I doubt anyone on this call would know them, so I use this story. And uh, they that they that they were discipling, and they decided that they were in quite a, you know, a significant leadership position. And they decided to just leave. And as they were leaving, they said, well, I love our church. And I said, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because love requires faithful compassion. And you cannot love people while walking away from them. To this day, this, th th that person has no meaningful relationship with any person in our church or any university campus. Therefore, what does it mean that they love our church or love our campuses? 
You see, love is not narcissistic. It's not about how I feel. It's not about what I want. It's not about what love is not short-sighted and narrow. It's not based on my good intentions. Love requires faithful compassion. Love requires that we finish the race. That we continue to press on in the Apostle Paul's words to love, to pour ourselves out for others. Simple church leaders, the the vision of love, if we're going to love our simple churches like Jesus, it means that we lay our lives down for our simple churches. We actually consider what's in the interest of my simple church? What's in the interest of the people around me? How do I benefit them? How do I love them? How do I put them first? How do I ben- how do I see their needs met? How do I be faithful to them? How do I care for them? How do I serve them faithfully in the long run? The Christian vision of love is is modeled and exemplified by Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus, we are not saved, we are not brought to life, we are not made fully alive by positive feelings and good intentions. That's not love. We are made fully alive because Jesus finished what he started. And this is why the Christian vision of love is hard. Because it means that we have to persevere through conflict, through pain, through adversity, through difficulty, through hardship, through hurt, through disappointment, through betrayal. And keep on choosing to love. Now, this vision of love is very hard, right? It's not easy. It's not easy to wake up every day and say, I'm going to choose to put other people first. There's a lot of days where I don't want to do that. But I think, church, we have to, we have to derive our vision of love from the scriptures. And, and allow what Jesus has done to really captivate us. And if we, if we look at these definitions of love, like love is self-denial, love is to suffer with, love is to bring the truth. I'm like, that's really hard. Like, I don't know if I can do that. What I would invite us to do is to then, to then pause and, and go back to our time with Jesus and say, Jesus, like, like I can't love the way you love. I don't know how to love the way you love. That kind of love is not in me. It's not part of me. It's not in my bones. Like, I, and I think we need to humbly acknowledge that we can't. Like, can, we, can you and I, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever simple church family, can we agree that we can't love that well like this? But what we can do is we can continually go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me. Help me to love like this. Show me how you love me like this. And when we realize how much and what Jesus has really done, to love like Jesus becomes a lot easier. So often we look at this vision of love and we try to force it 
but we try to force it without having first experienced it. We try to live a reality that we have never actually known ourselves. To know the fact that love is an event means that we can experience the fact that Jesus loves us. And so church, my final word I would just leave us with is that we must not try to uh, receive this as like a kind of a, you know, love wins, therefore rah, rah, I'm going to go and love like Jesus and try, try harder. No, let's love like Jesus more by knowing Jesus more, knowing his love more, not the trite reductionist version, but going to his word, say, Jesus, who are you? What do you like? How do you love me? All right, that's what I have for love wins today. First thing, next week, we're going to be doing um, an extended version of this. We're going to be talking about justice and how, how do we understand the biblical vision of justice, specifically talking about what it means that we're made in the image of God and how do we understand that. And um, the week after that, we're going to be talking uh, about entitlement and uh, we're wrapping up that series before we do something new for the summer. We've got a surprise coming your way. That's it. We're going to go to Q&A. And uh, so I'm going to slide things over. We'll be right back. affirming right um it was just such a cool like i mean it's it's true and it's obvious kind of but it's like good to pound that in <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 for sure mm. um was there anything that you would like any just while we wait for questions to come in on the chat any mm. questions that you had kind of coming out of it um not fully like questions but like how do you get over um like your insecurity in like like you definitely love these people but you're you don't know how to um call them out or like tell them the truth without hurting their feelings how do you get like past that 
mental roadblock. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to maybe take a bit of an interesting um, a sort of angle on this, which is that... So sometimes I wonder if our church... We sort of tend to exist between two extremes, and I don't mm-hmm. think either of those extremes are, are, are necessarily very good. On one extreme, we tend to be uh, like really affirming or really passive, right? Mm-hmm. So we just, mm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to, I'm going to, we're like, I don't know, we're just good Canadians or something. Like <laughs> um, and um, so we, we tend to just sort of like, well, you know, like I'm just sort of not going to say anything mm-hmm. on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we tend, I think sometimes as a church, to just try to like, react against that and go like, well, I'm just going to bring the smack down. Mm. I'm going to tell them. And the problem is like, neither of those are loving. Mm. True love. And I think this is the point I'm trying to get at means that we must enter into the pain of Mm. the person that we're suffering. Like we must ask them, why are you doing what you're doing? Get into Mm -hmm. it with them. Not, not just in like in a judgmental sense, but allow the challenges or the reasons or the heartache or the, to be, to actually be understood by us, mm-hmm. then we need to invite people into a better way. So it's not so much like, hey, you're doing something bad, mm-hmm. but rather, c- come with me. I understand your pain, or at least I've sought to understand your pain. Come mm-hmm. come with me. And I, and I think our church, sometimes we, we swing to passive or legalism, and there's actually this, mm-hmm. this Jesus way, which is confronting boldly with the truth, but bringing people in close. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's... that's sort of what we're aiming at here so Mm. but yeah some questions come in um first question uh what would you say to someone who is trying to love like jesus but doesn't feel like they have experienced jesus love themselves and how can one encourage them to continue to love like jesus but not out of a striving or forcing mentality um and if they what if they've been praying for the experience of god's love for years and years Feels big. It's a big question. Um, yeah, the question is how do we, how does someone love like Jesus if they have not experienced Jesus' love? I think that's something of a complex question because it depends somewhat on um, the particulars of the person. Mm. Um, like if the person has, you know, they may have particular reasons why they're struggling and. Uh, you know, past hurts or past experiences. Um, it may be like a like a faith issue. Like it could be really like a lack of faith, or they're struggling to have faith. Um, and so, I think what would be a good starting point is to try to just probe some of the reasons that might be behind why, mm. um, and then I, I think invite people to to sort of appropriately what kind of work through those reasons as they come to the surface mm-hmm. and part of that is actually I think sitting and praying with the Holy Spirit and asking the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit I struggle to understand your love be vulnerable with that before God mm-hmm. some a lot of people struggle to be vulnerable say, I, I don't I don't know if I can do that so sit down with someone you're discipling or if that and say Holy Spirit I want to understand your love better can you mm-hmm. show me where I'm struggling to understand and just verbalize that Mm-hmm. is one part of it. The other part of it is some people struggle to 
um, verbalize love in general. They, they struggle to experience it in general. And so mm -hmm. I think probing some of those aspects. So, um, but I think the core of it is going to come down to, I, I think, opening ourselves up to the experience of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and starting to honestly express to God how we're honestly feeling. And I think not being ashamed of, of that, that sensation. So, mm -hmm. um, and particularly being, you can be vulnerable with other people about that. So, yeah, it's powerful. Um, so how do we show and live out love from those who are not walking with us as a church? Then like, therefore have a different perspective of, on love. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I think we ought to go back to first principles here and, um, in particular, the basics uh, in most cases of uh, presence, uh, not presence, <laughs> but presence, like being present in their life, mm. um, open home, uh, hospitality, uh, being there when they need us, mm. um, not simply seeking to be right. Um, mm. A lot of times when Christians seek to be right, uh, we make a mistake here. Remember what I was saying? Like we mustn't be passive, but we also mustn't Mm -hmm. Seek the high ground. We need to enter into the suffering with them. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, that's I, I, probably the most important dimension of love is to start by showing people the love of Jesus by suffering with them, being present with them, denying ourselves for them, giving them gifts, mm -hmm. uh, the gifts of our time, things like that. Uh, it really goes back to, I think, first principles. And then when we do that and we layer truth and talk about well, I do this because this is what Jesus did for me now it becomes a lot more compelling mm. so um, kind of a follow up question to that um, what does it practically look like to love someone without affirming their lifestyle choices um, especially with our culture and how they how everybody is uh, hostile towards uh, disagreement um, that's a great question um, yeah how do we how do we love without necessarily being affirming of, of, of choices. Mm -hmm. So uh, this goes back to something we were talking about last week a little bit, but I think that we... What's ha I think what's happened in our world, I'm going to take a bit of an angle on this, mm -hmm. uh, Ali, is that so few people have experienced real love, mm -hmm. like real unconditional love, that love that says it doesn't matter if you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you believe something different. It doesn't matter if you're not like me. Like they've never experienced that kind of love. So they've our world has stopped believing that it's even possible. Like our world doesn't really believe that unconditional love is impossible because right now our version of love requires affirmation, but that mm -hmm. that's a conditional kind of love because it's saying you can only love me if you accept me exactly as I am. Well, that mm -hmm. that's a conditional love. It's just reversed. And so at the core of that, I think what we first need to do is we need to know and experience again the love of Jesus ourselves. We need mm -hmm. to know what unconditional love is. We need to know in our souls what it is to be loved by God because I am a sinner. Mm. And I think a lot of Christians struggle to reconcile what it means to love people without affirming them because I don't know that we've really reconciled that before the throne of Almighty God ourselves. Mm. 
you see, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like it's kind of a question. Like we have to go and be like, holy smokes! Like I am loved by God, but not necessarily affirmed in everything I do by God. Hmm. And allow that reality to become our reality. Like in other words, I think our Christian vision, our Christian experience of God, is too shallow. We need to we need to more deeply understand the nature of God's love. Mm-hmm. So I know that that's not at all practically. And you, I think, asked. What does it practically look like? But I, I think that we must answer the question by anchoring it in the love of God for us as individuals. Mm. So we have to go back to the cross of Jesus and say, Jesus, help me understand your love. Now, to practically answer your question, <laughs> uh, part two, sorry, I know that was a long answer and I haven't even started to answer the question <laughs> yet, but is that once we do that, now our home, our presence, our welcoming spirit no longer comes from us needing to be right. Mm. right? Like, I don't, I don't need to be right. I don't need to win. You don't need to win the argument. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be liked by them. You don't need to, to have um, the moral high ground yourself because the moral high ground doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And thank God that he has forgiven you. So you see it like it changes our perspective to one of humility. Mm-hmm. So we can come to people and say, hey, my home is open. I love you. Come. Come spend time with me. Help me understand. We can ask questions to understand people's experiences, to genuinely understand them, and then help them see that God still loves them anyway. So practically, number one, I think it's got to start in the home. Or rather, it's got to start with the experience of God. Then it's got to start in the home. Mm-hmm. It's got to start uh, with hospitality. Um, it's got to start with a faithful presence, a willingness to enter into and mm-hmm. engage awkwardness, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to get awkward, and we have to be willing to engage that awkwardness. Uh, we have to be willing to say, hey, like, I'm a regular Christian. I probably believe regular Christian things, and you may not agree with me, but that's okay, right? Like, we can be, we can be cool. Mm-hmm. Or even, hey, you're mad at me. Okay. Like, we have to, we have to be willing to engage that awkwardness. So, one, mm-hmm. hospitality. Two, like open home three engage the awkwardness it's okay you're not going to die um and uh four ask questions so yeah this um, is the topic of a whole nother uh, yeah i mean yeah. i'm just sort of rambling on here uh, but it's just like yeah it's got to come back to faithful presence mm. um and we need to not be afraid of the awkwardness mm-hmm. so because we don't need to be right yeah. It's not about us being right. So anyway, sorry, that was a jumbled answer, but I hope there's nuggets coming through there. Cool. Um, Shane asks, how do you evaluate the fruits of extending Christ's love and what are si- signs of slipping into selfish love due to exhaustion or fatigue? Um, I think that I'm going to qualify this, uh, Shane. I'm going to push back you s- on something you say here because you say, what are the signs of slipping into selfish love due to exhaustion or fatigue? Um, but I think that we got to go and derive our understanding of love from um, the New Testament, and the New Testament teaches mm-hmm. that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, um, in uh, and I can do all things through Christ, mm-hmm. including persevere through weakness. And so it's not exhaustion or fatigue because those are things that happen to us. Rather, there's probably going to be some root of sin that we need to confront there. Um, so let's just call it what it is. I think when we blame it on exhaustion, 
Um, there's actually an underlying root of sin. Exhaustion is just a human experience, but when that exhaustion becomes justification for sinful behavior, it's the sin root we have to deal with, not the exhaustion. The exhaustion is just merely exposed the sin root. Do you see what I'm saying? So like practically, like a lot of guys will be like, I was tired and I found myself watching porn. And it's like, well, the problem wasn't that you were tired. The problem is that you have a porn addiction and probably rooted in some identity issues going on. You see what I'm saying? Like, like the exhaustion just exposed the deeper underlying issue. I mean, like Shane you know, Levi's like, you're not pulling any punches <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> so uh, how do you evaluate the fruits of extending uh, Christ's uh, love? This is where 1 Corinthians 13 comes in. Love is patient. It's kind. Um, it's uh, gentle. It's not, it, does, it keeps no record of wrongs. Like if our vision of love is bitter and keeping record of wrongs, it's not easily offended. Are we easily offended? So I would say 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of the go-to there mm -hmm. uh, as a evaluate, uh, evaluating of the fruit. So cool. Yeah. Um, well, should love be unconditional? And also, should your love be equally distributed to everyone? Um, yes, love should be unconditional because that's the love that Jesus gave for us. Mm -hmm. Should our love be equally distributed to everyone? Um that's a complicated question because I think on the surface, yes. Um, like that's the surface answer. We should love everyone equally. But of course, it's not practically possible to l deny ourselves and love literally every person we meet mm -hmm. um, to the exact same degree. So I think this is why it's important to have some focus in our life and why mm -hmm. the scriptures actually say that the way that we will know we're Christ's disciples, Jesus says, is by the way we love one another. So mm -hmm. the first place we have to start by loving is by loving inside the family of God and creating healthy churches because that then creates a light on a hill that will reflect to the mm. world around us, Matthew chapter 5. So I think, yes, we should be unconditional in our love, but we also need to be, I think, focused recognizing that we can't have deep, intimate relationships with every person we meet. Mm. So we need to focus that on our on our church families. Mm. Um, Gordon's asking, um, jumping on your wording, you can only love me if you affirm me. Uh, would you say our culture's version of love means only loving the people you affirm? Absolutely. Um, the And actually, our, our culture has shifted, I would say, in the last 18 months on this. Um, maybe prior to 18 months ago, five years ago, probably the normative thing in our culture was that uh, you needed to be affirming uh, mm. of a person in order to love them. But now it's shifted, uh, I think, even a point beyond that where now it's you not just need to affirm, you need to take a public stand with that person and celebrate mm. that behavior or that action, right? Uh, and this is, I, I think it's Romans... 129 I might be muddling up my passages but I think it's Romans 1 where it talks about people celebrated they didn't just do it they started to celebrate so that others would participate in the behavior and it's that mm -hmm. celebration that is now I think the, the the next kind of step so we've moved beyond affirming to now you have to champion mm -hmm. um, the cause yeah and this is a little bit where um, some of the critical theory stuff that I've taught on before comes into play so yeah mm -hmm. Um, I just want to recognize here that yeah, Ali highlights that she, hate, she hates awkwardness. Uh, yes, and I think that it's our willingness to embrace awkwardness that comes not because we like awkwardness, but because we've experienced the love of Jesus. And I think that's mm -hmm. why I kind of campaigned on that so much, because I think 
it's the awkwardness that's really the root issue a lot of the time. We're just like, I just, mm-hmm. I just don't touch it. Don't touch it. <laughs> so, fair enough. Um, Kirsten uh, says a lot of what you're talking about is really practical for people who are uh, who share a space and live near us. But how do we act adequately love those who are physically far away? Um, for example, biological family in another city or church, um, or church family in a different re- region. Um, so, I think that one of the mistakes that we make is that we think that physical proximity has no bearing on our ability to love. I think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something our church, I've been trying to help our church understand, that when we, when we move or move away from people, mm-hmm. that impacts the relationship. And our ability to actually show them love is seriously diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that we have to first recognize that the way that we love people um, who are physically distant from us is really, really hard. And that's why we have such a value of intentional proximity. Because the capacity to love requires that we suffer with. Well, it's very hard to suffer with people that are far from us. Now, Mm -hmm. technology has really helped that uh, and I think opened up um, some some avenues, but I don't think it's a replacement. Mm -hmm. Um, So that said, some some practical things. I think, again, mostly comes down to paying attention so that we can suffer with, paying attention so that we can be generous, paying attention so that we can bless. Um, so the more that we can pay attention, but it's also, it's really hard. And there's a reason why we, we kind of have the values mm-hmm. we have. So, yeah, true. Um, Caleb, asks, Caleb asks, how can we show the love of Jesus to people who don't know the true meaning of it? Um, like how, do, how does he share the true love of Jesus to people who have been affected by residential schools? Um, and no, Caleb, it is not too dark or hard of a question. You're not the one that has to answer it. <laughs> no, I'm pretty, I, I, I joke, Caleb. That's, that's a great question. Um, and I think... As usual, I'm mean, going to have to give, my, give me just a few seconds to collect my thoughts because I don't want to speak too quickly. Um, So I think the first part, to answer the first part of your question, how can we show the love of Jesus to those who don't know the true meaning of it? Um, one of the things that, that we can do and that even someone like you could do, Caleb, is to ask Jesus to, to reveal it to you. Help me understand mm-hmm. your love. Um, it's made known to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think we have to say, God, would you help me understand? You can invite him to show you, mm-hmm. um, number one. Number two is to really look at at the kind of love we see in scripture um, and we see modeled in Jesus life and say, help me understand what you did. So I think it's really going to come down to, I think a humility before God and a prayer, uh, sort of time in prayer saying, help me, help me understand. <clears throat> the other part of it here, which is that how do we do that for those that have been, you know, have, what are we doing? There's like a ton of negative baggage. You, you highlight the residential schools and that's a tremendously painful, um, history that 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 is very difficult to reconcile um and it's certainly not the only you know instance of this kind of thing happening whether it's there's all kinds of abuses that would put up barriers between 
what Jesus has done and people's perception of what Jesus has done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the first things we can do is we can we have to derive our understanding of Jesus' love um, first from the scriptures, mm-hmm. and secondly from um, from the church. We have to say, look, the kind of love that Jesus has was not modeled adequately in the residential schools. Uh, not only was it not modeled, it was shamefully associated, um, and we don't need to in any way defend that behavior because it is absolutely reprehensible. Mm. But at the same time, Jesus also wouldn't defend it because there's no, there's such a gulf. And so what I would do is I'd encourage people to really look at the scriptures, look at the way Jesus actually loved. Mm. Jesus was, you know, a minority. He was, he was oppressed by the, by, by, you know, people that held tremendous power over him. He was, tremendously isolated he was betrayed by his best friends he, he understands he empathizes with that pain but we have to derive that out of scripture so uh, i think it's pretty easy to demonstrate the, the gap between what people have experienced and what jesus heart really is um and so i would start there but that's a pretty com- pretty quick answer to a pretty complicated question so um yeah um there's a big conversation about pizza going on um <laughs> And how we should not stick it into mailboxes. Okay. So there's that. Um, no questions currently. Oh, perfect. Dan Dan shared our address, our new address, so that we can get pizza sent to us. Um, the other part here um, is that, and I've said this before, is that we can't share the love of Jesus until we have experienced the love of Jesus. You can't mm-hmm. share what you don't know. So we have to start by saying, Jesus, help me know it. And I think a lot of Christians are trying to walk out this idea of love without really understanding Jesus' love. And we need to pause and say, wow, like, Jesus, help me really understand what you did. Help me see it and say how good it really is. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. All right, I think we've digressed. We're well over now. So sorry you guys missed the interview, but we will get it back at another time. Mm -hmm. Love you guys. Thanks for a great conversation. And we will see you guys next week. Love you all very much. See you.